Okay, I'm back. I don't know if that's five minutes. Roughly speaking, that's five minutes. I'm here. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay, everybody. Very happy. Thank you. So I think, don't have any questions yet. We'll keep going because we need to get our head around the use of this word emptiness. And it's in the end, like all these things, they're not complicated, but we, just, it, we make it complicated because we can't get our head around them. So let's just try and get our head around the use of this word. And it's not something that, it's not, it's not how we talk, but once you see, we do, talk, we do talk like this. So we just have to get the point. So the first thing is this, listen to this. Whatever exists, think of it this way. This is my way of putting it. I don't say that in Buddhism. It's like a noun. The mind cognizes nouns or noun or phrases. The mind cognizes things, events, actions, objects. That's how the mind functions. So let's use a simple example. Let's say Jason is colorblind and something is pink and how do and this is a very important point we're talking conventional reality here how do we know it's pink this is the point it's not coming from the sky it's not something that's intrinsic it's an agree that's what conventional means it means by agreement so we have agreed when the light is a certain way and certain pigments are there and the eyes are working nicely we call that pink it's an agreement between us the english sound pink refers to that. And we all agree. So when we can all agree, then we can have a conversation. Pass me the pink thing and you'll pass it to me. We don't have disagreement. That's how we can get along. That's called science. We define something. We, we prove it is that based on conventions. And this is talking conventional reality. So that's pink. So now Jason is colorblind. His eyes are weird. Think like this really simply. His eyes are weird. So when pink appears to, you know, pink appears to Jason, because of his eyes being weird, it appears to him as blue. Now, conventional is just conventional reality. We agree it's called pink. So he's got it wrong. So if I say to him, please pass me that pink cup, he'll say, no, I don't have a pink cup. So we're going to have a war because I don't realize the poor guy's colorblind. I think he's lying to me. So this is just ordinary language. So then we discover the poor guy's got funny eyes. So we can bully him into believing it's pink every day, but it appears blue. So he, we want him to see reality, please. So we fix his eyes, the poor guy. And now, this is now the point now. Listen to me. Listen to this point now. All his life, he's believed it's blue. It appears blue. He thinks of blue. He expects blue. He's, it's, it's, it, it appears blue. It's programmed in his mind that pink is blue. But now we fixed his eyes. And we show him the pink again. So naturally, the first thing we're going to think is, well, he's going to see it as pink now. Well, pink will appear to him and he will get the shock of his life. And what he will go, oh, my God, it's not blue, he will say, because he's expecting it to be blue. He believes it's blue. So he won't say, oh, look at that, it's pink. Pink will appear to him for an instant. That's why he goes, oh, my God, it's not blue, because he's seen the truth. But this is the point now. So what he just cognized when he said it's not blue, what, what object, remember the word object is what, to whatever exists. So what appeared to him was the absence of blue. Think of that. Look at a simpler example. 
I pick up my thermos and I go to drink and I go, oh, and I go, oh, look, my thermos is empty. Analyze this now. What happened there? I was expecting tea to be in my thermos. So when I go to drink it, I go, oh, my God, it's empty. If I'm expecting money in my bank account, I know there's money in my bank account. I put it there. I totally believe there's money in my bank account. I open up my bank account. And in reality, let's say the zero there. I will see the zero, but instantaneously, what will appear to my mind, the phenomenon, the object of knowledge, the thing that appears to my mind is the very vivid phenomenon called the absence of my precious $5,000, which is what I expect there to be there. What I, the mind just cognizes the absence of tea. When I say my cup is empty, I don't mean of dollars. I don't mean of anything else because I'm expecting tea. So I think I, I'm just cognizing the emptiness of tea, the absence of tea. Yes, it's, it's an abstract concept, but that's how the mind cognizes. And this is the interesting point. The only person who, to whom, for in Jason's case, in my case, the only person to whom the absence of blue will appear is the person who expects blue. The only person who to whom the absence of tea will appear when they pick up that thermos is the person who expects tea. So the absence of something in this framework is the something that somebody expects. You believe there's $5,000 in your bank. You believe it. You know it. You put it there. It's as real as you can taste it. And then when you look in the bank and the zero appears to you, you will see the zero. But that's not what you cognize. You don't go, oh, no money in my bank. No, you don't say that. You'll go, where's my precious $5,000? So the object, the phenomenon, the existent that appears to your mind, and it's a true phenomenon. There is existing in that bank the absence of $5,000. There is existing in this thermos the absence of tea. There is existing, there is existing on this, on the pink cup, the absence of blue. It is a real phenomenon for Jason. So you've got to get used to the idea of the absence of something being a cognizable phenomenon. And I'm just talking ordinary examples here ordinary. So the absence of tea is a valid phenomenon that does exist for the person who expects tea when they discover there's no tea. The absence of $5,000 is a real, vivid, true, existent phenomenon for the person who expects $5,000 in the bank where there's $0 or $47 for that matter. It's not $5,000. So what's this got to do with the price of fish? Well, everything. When you finally, in calm abiding, whether it's Mahamudra or this other method, finally the penny drops and you see nakedly for the first time ever, the directly, nakedly, at the subtle level of your mind, the absence of this precious intrinsic eye that we have believed in for eons, but that has never existed doesn't exist and couldn't exist. Tea could exist. $5,000 could exist. Blue could exist. But this one is a radical negation. It is not a possibility that an intrinsic eye could ever exist. And when you see the absence of that, that's the realization of emptiness. And it's a real powerful 
amazing experience. And as Lama Zopa says, the greatest yogis will have incredible fear. Lama says it in the book. We haven't read that part yet. But the greatest yogis will be completely blissed out when they finally have realized that the nonsense I they believed in since beginningless time, the belief in which has been the source of all suffering, has never, doesn't, and could never exist. It's like utter bliss. Are we communicating? Sounds delicious. Delicious, isn't it? You've got to agree. So the emptiness of something isn't the nothingness of something. That's the point I'm trying to make. Listen, use this example. Let's say I don't expect $5,000 and Jason has believing in $5,000 in his bank. He says, Rabina, will you look in my bank for me and tell me how much is there? So he gives me the password. I go online. I put the password in and I tell him the truth. I don't have no expectations. I will tell him the truth. I'll say, there's no dollars, Jason. Now, this is, this is, I purposely use the idea of no dollars. I couldn't use the idea of $47 or $62. It doesn't matter what's there. It isn't his precious 5,000. So I don't notice there's an absence of $5,000 because I didn't expect $5,000. So this is the interesting point now. Please try and hear this. In this simple conventional uh, analogy, the zero is nihilism. There are no dollars. I can't find any dollars in there. There's no dollars. I will see no dollars. Now, that's the, what is the object that my client, what's the object? The word object is referring to whatever appears to your mind. There's two different ways of talking about the word object. It's whatever exists, but specifically, the mind is always called the subject. And subject, the mind always cognizes an object. Something has to appear to the mind. As long as mind is functioning, it is cognizing something. So in my case, I'm cognizing, I'm aware of, I am seeing a zero. So I'll tell him what I see. No, there's no dollars. That's an analogy here for nihilism. There's no dollars. Now, that's what appears to my mind. Now, what appears to Jason's mind? Think of this. What appears to Jason's mind when for a flash he sees the zero, but what he really sees, what appears to him when he gets the shock of his life, is another phenomenon called the absence of $5,000. Now, think of this. Zero dollars does not, is not the same phenomenon as the absence of $5,000. The absence of $5,000 is a completely different phenomenon. So that's why emptiness of $5,000 doesn't mean no dollars. So emptiness of an intrinsic I is not the same as saying there is no I. They are different phenomena. When you can understand this, you're on the track of seeing the two truths together, you know. And this is what the Heart Sutra is saying, as His Holiness points out. Not that I'm so clever and I understand the Heart Sutra. I'm just quoting His Holiness. But in the Heart Sutra, what the Heart Sutra is, is this marvelous teaching the Buddha gave. But there's many ways Buddha gave his teachings. And this particular way is one that he gave when he's, at, when he's in meditation, blissing out. As it says, thus have I heard at one time the Lord was dwelling in Vajagriya, Vajagriya Mountain, with the great host of monks and the great host of bodhisattvas. And he was in the, he was in the concentration, you know, on the, on the profound, whatever it is. He was sitting in meditation. And then he's, he's, he's in meditation. And then he's channeling his thoughts into the mind and mouths of Shariputra and Abhidhikitasvara as a 10th level bodhisattva. So the reality is there he is sitting up there in Vulture Peak, this little tiny spot up on the, mountain, on the top of a hill. He's in meditation. He's not speaking, but he's channeling his thoughts into the minds of his disciples and they're having a chat. 
They're having a chat. So they say all the words, but actually it's Buddha's teaching. That's how he gave a lot of his teachings. So we imagine we're in, the, in you know, Vulture Peak, and it's very interesting. It says uh, there's a grace host of monks and there's a grace host of bodhisattvas. Now, if anybody's been to Vulture Peak, you know it's about the size of a, of a pocket handkerchief. There's half a dozen people, maybe 20 people can squeeze in, you know. So when you go there, especially in the morning, you see your Thai people are shouting Heart Sutra, the Vietnamese are shouting Heart Sutra, the Tibetans are shouting Heart Sutra, the, the Injis are shouting Heart Sutra. So what we discovered was, that, you know, the afternoons are always so hot there. So one day we went there in the afternoon, it was heaven. Nobody was there. So we hear ourselves say the Heart Sutra. It was gorgeous. It was a tiny spot. So I used to wonder, I wonder where all the, the great host of monks and the great host of bodies like to sit because you can't fit there. So I asked Geshe Dugpa, our lama in San Francisco, and he said, oh, he said, they're in the sky. What do you think? So I love that. So I think we're in the sky, blissing out, while Shariputra and Avadakita have a chat. And what they're talking about is, you know, Shariputra says to Avadakita how should any child of fa good family, you know, engage in the, in the practice of the profound perfection? And then Shariputra says, you know, Shariputra, any child or daughter who engages in the profound perfection should look upon it like this. He or she beholds but five scanners in their own being, they're empty. So now what present, they then present, what Avadakita starts to say, he presents all the different phenomena of the universe according to the Buddhist worldview. You know, he, he talks about there's no, no five aggregates, which is actually a way that Buddha presents a person made of five components. There's no, there's no form, no feeling, no recognition, no volition, no consciousness. There's no eye, no ear, no, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. Then so there's the, that's the first of the six of the 18 constituents. There's none of the 18 constituents. Then there's no four noble truths. There's no 12 links. All the categories of phenomena. And so what this whole Heart Sutra is, is a presentation of what a yogi absorbed in meditation what is appearing to him, know this, know that. Because when you're in calm abiding, you're beyond conceptuality. So there's merely the appearance of the absence of everything. So that's what they're saying. So the first sentence is this. One of the first sentences says this. Form is empty. So form is the first of the five aggregates. And it's just referring to the physicality of us. That's all. That's the first of the five aggregates. And he says, form is emptiness. Form is empty. Emptiness is form. Form is nothing other than emptiness. And emptiness is nothing other than form. So this is the two truths inextricably linked. So what does it mean? How do we get our head around that? Okay, this is what it means. Let's ask for Jason. He's colorblind, right? So, and he's now realized his mistake because we've, we've we fixed his eyes. So the first one says form, which is conventional reality. Conventional reality is pink cup or pink. Just call pink. Call pink cup because pink can't exist on its own. It's got to be a, a character of a thing that exists. So we say pink cup. So that's form. That's reality. That's conventional truth. Pink cup. So we'll, So what this is saying is pink cup is empty of being blue. And wherever there's emptiness of blue, there is pink cup. That pink cup is nothing other than empty of blue and emptiness of blue is nothing other than pink cup. So think these words through now, think them through. When he's realized that blue is not existing on that pink cup. So this is the point to get now. If we say there's a pink cup, the first thing is a pink cup. That's a phenomenon that does exist. And Jason has now fixed his eyes and he's now seeing the truth that the, on that pink cup, there does exist 
the emptiness of blue. Emptiness just means absence or lack. He's finally realized, because his eyes are fixed, that right there on that pink cup, right there, there does exist a phenomenon called the absence of blue. Right there in this thermos, right here in this thermos that is the conventional truth that does exist, there does exist right here in this thermos the absence of tea. So the absence of, so wherever there is thermos, conventional truth, it's just an analogy, okay? There is the absence of tea for me. And wherever I see the absence of tea, in other words, okay, where does the absence of tea exist? Where, okay, if there's an ordinary thermos with ordinary tea, tea exists in the thermos, doesn't it? So wherever you find the thermos, you will find tea. And wherever you find tea, in this case, you'll find it right there in the thermos. Wherever there's a pink cup, you will find pink right there on the pink cup. Now, for him, he's realized his mistake. So the phenomenon he is seeing is the absence of blue. So where does the absence of blue exist? You don't go, oh, there's no blue. Oh, look, there's no blue. Where does no blue exist? Right here on this pink cup. So wherever there is form, which is the first of the five components of a person, you will find right there the absence of inherent form. Because it's not just the self that's empty, it's everything that exists is empty of intrinsic nature. So form is empty of existing inherently. And wherever you find the phenomenon called the emptiness of inherent form, you will find right there conventional form. Wherever you find conventional form, right there, you'll find on that conventional form, the absence of inherent form. Emptiness, in other words, isn't meaning, oh, there's no form, there's no cup, there's no eye, it's all empty. That's nihilism. So emptiness, in his case, emptiness of blue cup exists exactly on the pink cup. So emptiness of inherent Rabina, emptiness of inherent Rabina exists right here on the conventional Rabina. So emptiness of inherent Rabina is the flip side of there is a conventional Rabina. Conventional Rabina is the flip side of emptiness of inherent Rabina when you realized it. So emptiness is meaning there's no, not, no, there's no Rabina. No, no, that's nihilism. That's rubbish. So emptiness of inherent existence of Rabina is a characteristic of conventional Rabina. Emptiness of blue cup is a characteristic of a pink cup. Emptiness of tea is a characteristic of a thermos. In this case, is, is, is existing in a thermos. These are simple, ordinary, conventional uh, examples. The emptiness of $5,000 exists nowhere but right in that bank account. So emptiness isn't going, ah, oh, there's no emptiness, no dollars, there's no cup, there's no eye, there's nothing, I might as well kill myself. That's nihilism. The emptiness of $5,000 is not the same as no dollars. No dollars is nihilism. There's no dollars. All the big dollars have been chucked out of the bank. No dollars left. That's not the meaning of emptiness, but that's how we think of it. All right, chuck out all the bits, chuck out all the nose, chuck out the eye, chuck out the ears, chuck out the pee-pee, the, the caca, the, the ligaments. You will not find an eye. You will not find a piece called I, but that you haven't gone far enough. That's nihilism. As, as His Holiness said, 
The I isn't empty of intrinsic existence because you can't find a piece called I, and you can't. That's not the real premise. The I is empty of intrinsic existence because it's a dependent arising. The two truths have to be together. You cannot find a form or eye or peanut or lamp or whatever the phenomenon is. You can't find a conventional phenomenon without at the same time it's inextricably linked to its ultimate character of, ex of existing, um, of, of being empty of intrinsic form. You cannot find a self that is separate from the emptiness of intrinsic self. You cannot find a lamp, a conventional lamp, that's separate from an intrinsic and uh, that's separate from the emptiness of intrinsic lamp. So we just got to get used to the words, that's all. Then if you've got these two together, you're on the right track because the two truths come together. And when you're finally a Buddha, when you're finally a Buddha and you've removed all obstacles from the mind, finally this non-duality is reality for you. Finally, finally. Even they say the greatest yogi, in their meditation, they're absorbed in emptiness. But as soon as they come into the world again, things appear as separate. Things appear as dualistic but they don't believe in it. It's only when you've finally removed all obstacles from your mind that you see the two truths simultaneously. So as I mean, she says, dependent arising is the king of logics to prove emptiness, you know? So maybe have some questions, please. Because we, all we've talked about today is this, and we've got lots of other things to talk about, what to do. Any questions, everybody? Please ask me some questions. Um, we do have some questions, Venerable Rabina. We've got a few. Elaborate. About, Go on. What's the question? A few about emptiness and then one about meditation. Huh? Sorry, I'm just scrolling back to the question. Elaborate on the role of what? Um, I can't hear you, darling. Sorry. What's going on? I can't hear you. Sorry, I'm just finding the questions. I'm sorry. Okay. Sorry. Uh, I didn't hear my volume was off. Go on. Talk again. Okay, so uh, Wolfgang has asked, in science, once you understand logically a topic, the penny drops. Why is it yeah. not, not the same in Buddhist science? Emptiness is logically easy to understand. Why does this emptiness penny not drop that easily, even though you understand it logically? Because we've got intellect and we have experiential, and experiential is not the same as intellect. You can you could learn acupuncture, Wolfgang. You know this because we're intelligent. We can learn the whole theory and even pass an exam and be right. But that's only intellectual knowledge. You can learn the music intellectually, understand the theories brilliantly, but to play it takes time. To experience the reality of it takes time. Why? It's because the instinct of ego grasping is so strong that even though we know it intellectually, the penny hasn't dropped yet. That's why intellectual knowledge science is easy in comparison. It's easy in comparison. This means a clever conceptual mind. And we can have that, but the biggest mistake is to confuse or to conflate intellectual knowledge with knowing it experientially. That takes time because the mistake is so primordial. That's why I hope that helps Wolfgang. Because if that's the case, I mean, we, if, if only we needed intellectual knowledge, we'd all be enlightened now, no problem. It's a very good point. But don't, don't discount the intellectual knowledge, but don't conflate intellectual knowledge with experiential. That's one of the biggest problems. What else? Um, Randy has asked, would the word reality be a word that the Buddha would use for that which truly exists? Well, that's what we're discussing here. That's the, one of the commonest words in Buddhism, yeah. This conventional reality and ultimate reality. Reality is exactly the facts, what does exist. Exactly that word. It's exactly the correct word, yes. So is there a question from that? Well, that's it. 
that that's all that's in the okay good all right yes exactly right go on next okay uh from wendy um does the eye does the eye exist in some subtle way that seems like sorry oh so then the eye does exist in some subtle way that seems like it exists and the eye exists upon the mind calling it the eye uh not quite like that you sort of sort of roughly but what it's saying is this there is there is a there is a name called I, like Lama told us yesterday. There is a name called I or a name. Who asked the question? Uh, it was from Wendy. Okay, Wendy. Here's the label Wendy. So the label Wendy in this framework is used to refer to the body and mind sitting on a chair or wherever you're sitting, honey. That the body and mind are the valid basis. They're the valid basis for the label. They're the valid basis for the label Wendy. So there's label Wendy, and then there's the basis. There's a label cup or thermos, and then there's the basis of the label. So one of the key arguments here is, so there's a basis of the, the parts for Wendy, and then the label Wendy. Now we conflate those two, and we either think, which is a mistake we've already pointed to, that there's a part in there that's another part called Wendy, or the other mistake we make, which we haven't discussed yet, is that we think the parts Ah, Wendy. We say, this is Wendy. No, it's not Wendy. As Lama Zopa said, when he's a little boy drowning up in the mountains, you know, his reincarnation from a previous yogi, and obviously the realization of emptiness was in his mind, he said, oh, the thought occurred, he was drowning in the river. He said, oh, the thought occurred to me, the person known as the Laudo Lama. He didn't say, I am drowning, which is how we say it, because we conflate Wendy with the bits. So Wendy is the name, a valid, but once we've checked that that is Wendy, you know, that's the name we give to that particular group of body and mind, then we would say that Wendy is the name we give to that valid basis. And the valid basis is a body and a mind. That's how you'd say it. Any more questions? Uh, yeah, Randy has asked, can't the fact that everything is made of the same elements, just in different combinations, also explain emptiness since it's all the same thing anyway. No, that's that's kind of like something is similar there, the, but that's not really at all the meaning. That's a bit sort of a nihilistic meaning, kind of merging everything into a big lump. Not like that, no. Everything is made of the four elements. Every single person's body is made of the same four elements as a mountain or a volcano. They're the four elements, very clear, very clear. But each particular group of four elements known as a person's four elements has got a different consciousness in them. So that makes that's what makes the difference. There's a dog and then there's, then there's you. What's the name again? Who's who asked the question? Randy. So there's a person called Randy and there's a person called a dog. You've both got the same elements, yep. And so that'll help you get compassion. But it ain't the same. Randy's mind is not a dog's mind and their karma is different and everything's different. So in that sense, but it, it sort of is showing some continuity, some similarity, but it's not the meaning of emptiness. It's not implied by that. No. Go on, what else? Um, David is asking, can the emptiness of pink be a label for the absence of any other colour? Absence of red, yeah, orange. I know where we're getting confused here because I'm just using it a really gross analogy. It's, I mean, it's just the only the example here is only because it is a pink cup. We've all established it's a pink cup. It could just easily be a blue cup. I mean, a purple cup or a black cup or a white cup. It's just an example of a reality which is a pink cup, and then his fantasy that it's blue, and then his realization that it ain't blue. 
That was just a mealy, of course it could be used any color at all, anything at all. It was just a simple example of a fantasy where he believes something is what it's not. And then he realizes his mistake. And when he realizes his mistake, the first thing he sees is the absence of the blue. So I'm just using that as an analogy of the absence of an inherent eye. That was the kind of simple analogy I'm trying to talk. The absence of tea, the absence of $5,000. There's simple examples to get us around our head around the idea of there being the absence of something that you thought was there. That was the whole reason for that. Yes, something else. Um, Jack is asking, is it like looking at one of those optical illusion paintings where you stare at it for long enough and a picture of a form emerges from the patterns? Well, no, the best you can get from that is when, you know, it sounds like when I was having a, you know, when I was stoned out of my brain on acid or marijuana, when weird, wonderful things appear to you, at least you're loosening your grip a little bit of things existing from their own side, but it's not anywhere near like the real truth, but it helps us at least see that things aren't real, things aren't concrete. It's a good, it's a good help. It's a good start. But that just becomes nihilistic. It's just a weird bunch of weird things. That's not what the, that's not the conclusion at all. Go on, what else? These are very helpful, all these questions. Go on. Um, Sam is saying, could you elaborate on the role of intention? Is intention the thing that we often confuse to be the I insofar as it runs? A very good point. A very good point. Yes, exactly. So let's do a little. Now, that reminds me of another little workshop we can do to really show us that we don't need a separate little piece called mini me for us to function. You're not going to find that mini me in the IKEA box. So let's just do this kind of reverse analysis, do a reverse analysis, and we'll get to your question. It'll answer it. So, okay, I use this simple example of, let's say, I've lost, I've had a stroke and I've lost my memory, and you have to teach me all over again how to do something really simple, like hold a cup in my left hand. Let's just say. So I can't remember what a cup is. I don't remember what to do with the fingers. So you've got to train me. So this is the, it's a very simple point. So if you want to do it, like it's the IKEA business, if you wanted to do a really, you've got to write a list down for me of exactly the components of I that are involved in doing the action of holding a cup in my left hand. I have to train again. So you've got to train me. So I don't know what a thumb is. I don't know what a finger is. You've got to train me. Well, Rabina, you've got to have your thumb here and the index finger does this because each of those things in the IKEA box all have a function. You don't have 47 fingers and just choose them. Each of those fingers plays a role. So I've got to learn to each finger what it does. Each Then I've got to know what the ligament is and I have to train the, the muscles and the bones and up to here and the elbow. So if you you wrote a long list down of all the components of Rabina that are specifically involved in the simple action of having to hold a cup. So you'd have all the bits of the body, every single tiny bit, there's, there must be many hundreds that are involved in that action. You'd have all the bits of the mind. Now, what are they? They're going to be, they're not going to be so much virtue or non-virtue. There might be attachment or anger there, but there's going to be the mechanics, which is intention. Intention is I will, and that's there every second. If that's missing, nothing will happen. So intention, I will. Attention, you pay attention. Discrimination, which shows me what this finger does and what that finger does. Then there's mindfulness. Then there's all these other bits of the mind, the mechanics that I have to work together. And then the memory, get them slowly all to work together so I can accomplish the job of holding a cup in my left hand. There'd be a lot of work to do. So you, I've got to have this analysis and you'd have to have this list, the list of the parts of Rabina involved in that action 
now. Like with Ikea, when you put all the bits together and they all do their job beautifully, we are convinced. Oh, no, this is, no, no, forget that. Now the question is this. We've assigned to the finger, the pinky, what it does. The ring finger does something. The palm does something. The ligament has a job. Every bit. Intention has a job. I'm going to get to intention in a minute. Attention has a job. Discrimination has a job. Mindfulness has a job. Alertness has a job. Feeling has a job. Contact has a job. Each of the pieces, like you put that table together, every piece in that box will have to have a particular job. Otherwise, it won't make a table. Otherwise, it won't make a Rabina holding a cup. So each of the pieces does their job. Think of this. Each of the pieces does their job. So then we, so now my question is this. What job is left over for the poor, precious little me that feels left out? What job do you think a precious little me would have to do? Because we think there is a me in there. And I'll answer your question. We think the me is the piece that runs the show. We think that's the boss. We think there's a me in there that decides what to do. There's a me that says has intention. There's a me that pays attention. There's a me that, that picks up. There's a me that discriminates. There's a me that feels. No. There's no piece called me. We don't need one. So this is my answer now. The, if you want a boss, intention is the boss. And that's mind. We've covered it. Intention starts the ball rolling. So you don't need a me. We don't need a separate me to make things happen. But we, when we say the word I, it's like there's this boss in there running the show, you know, this special piece called I, without which the pieces wouldn't know what to do. And that's the concept of a creator. For Buddha, that's a conspiracy theory. We don't need a creator. We don't need a, a rewarder. We don't need a punisher. We don't need a boss. If you want one, it's the mind. And if you want a piece of the mind, that's the boss that starts the ball rolling. It's called intention. It's a very shocking idea to us because we believe in this boss called I. We feel the pain as a result of believing in that I, you know. So the parts do just fine. And that's the point about a creator of the Buddha. There's just trillions of sentient beings, each of them creating their own suffering, each of them creating their own happiness, each of them experiencing the results of their own suffering, the results of their own happiness. But we are convinced we need a punisher and a rewarder to judge us. No, that's a fantasy made up. Buddha says we don't need that. It really, I'm not being rude. It's a conspiracy theory, you know, self-existence. Very interesting view. It's a shocking view. So intention is the boss. You want a boss intention. It starts the ball rolling, in other words. It can't work on its own. It's got to work with all the others. You can't, your index finger can't work on its own. It can do nothing without the help of all the other bits. The same with every single bit. They work totally interdependently together. And then I is the label. Like Lama said yesterday, I is the name, nothing more that we give to those bits. And then we go, oh, well, I've got some bits. At least there's some bits. No. Because bit knows is merely a label we give to its bits. Well, I've got an ear. No. Ear is a mere label we give to its bits. Well, I've got a chin. No. There's no intrinsic chin. Chin is a label we give to its bits. And everything you point to, intention. Oh, I've got intention. No, because intention is a mere label we give to its bits. Every bit is made, is dependent on its own piece. So there's nothing you can find, nothing anywhere. It's merely a label. But that doesn't mean there's no eye and there's no lamp and there's no cup and there's no Buddha. It doesn't mean that. There is a Buddha. 
that does exist interdependently on causes, conditions, and parts in the mind labeling, but there's no Buddha from its own side. There's no negativity from its own side. There's no hell from its own side. It doesn't mean there's no hell. There's no Buddha from its own side. It doesn't mean there's no Buddha. There is a Buddha, depending on arising Buddha. It's to put these two truths together. That's the tricky part. What else? Uh, Doris has said um, she understands that the only person who can cognize the absence of tea is the person who expects to find tea. But what if the person looking for the eye expects not to find the eye? How then? You wouldn't, can you wouldn't expect not to find the eye, Doris. If you're a samsaric person, you wouldn't expect not to find the eye. You believe in an eye. That's the whole point. If you don't expect to find it, you've realized emptiness already. So you're fine, baby. You can go away. You're in life. <laughs> don't worry about it. All right, Doris? <laughs> Only if you're a samsaric being, babe. You'll expect to find the eye. Now, go on. Um, Prue is saying, am I correcting this? I exist exactly where there is no I. There is no me that exists according to the story others have of me. And no me. Oh, that the first bit's fine. The next bit, I'm lost. Okay. Okay. Uh, so there is no me that exists according to the story others have of me. I don't and know what that means. I don't know, get that piece. You have to explain to me whoever said it, please. Okay. The first part, say the first part again. Um, I exist exactly where there is no I. I, yeah, exactly. Wherever there is a, a conventional I, right there exists the absence of intrinsic I. That's perfect. The next bit, I'm lost. So you have to explain it to me if you want me to answer it. Okay. Prove, Who said it? Prove, Prove, come on, pick up, baby. Like Where's Prue? I'm here. Here. I'm here. Where are you, I can see your green box. I can't see your green box. Oh, there's Prue. Talk oh, yeah. to me, Prue. Yeah. I see you. Um, so what I was saying was it, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, and I think I've got it, and then other things happen, okay. and I think, That's oh, no, I haven't. So, <laughs> second part, I'm a bit confused about what other people think. Yeah. So um, I, I'm in a relationship. And, uh, and so there's a, a me that I am seen to be according to that person. Yeah, there's a person's view of you. Yes. So in other words, you yes. all objects exist in, so in, in, through the lenses of the other person watching. So this person has lots of attachment for you. They'll see you like yeah. an angel. If they've got lots of anger for you, they'll see you like a mean person. If they're mm. jealous, they'll interpret your actions a certain way. Absolutely. Mm. They're seen through the lenses of whatever person's in their mind. That's right. So yeah. then... And then the confusion becomes, so he has a story that he tells himself about me. Yep, that's and right. I have a story about me that I tell myself about That's right. Me. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And this is now, before you go, Prue, this yeah. is me conventional reality. This yeah. is going to do this. But go on, mm -hmm. go on. We're all communicating. Go on. So, so then both of those exist well, in no, our mind. Both, no, both of those are views in each views. of your mind. Doesn't mean they're valid views, but they're yeah. views. Are, they're real insofar as they're views, but yeah. it doesn't mean they're valid views. It doesn't mean they're valid cognitions. If yeah. I'm seeing you through, through through attachment, my cognition is real, but it ain't true. Yeah, I'm made of a fantasy about you, but that's why we have problems in relationships because we make up each other's fantasies, don't we? Yes, 
Yeah. So then that's where, like, you know, that's where in our from our side, we have to learn to find what is real and what is not, and then let other people see us as they wish. And part of our practice, if we're brave enough, is let them have their projections, but don't buy into them and know that who you are from your own side. It's sort of like if you're your mummy and your little kid's having a tantrum and thinks you're evil, you don't buy into it, you just laugh at them. That's how we have to learn to be. But our trouble is, Prue, because we're so attached to another person loving us, we're so attached to be seen as a lovely person, we can't bear it when people make up their own stories. If it's because it's an angry, if they're attached, we love it if they're attached to us. We love being seen as an angel. We don't like being seen as a devil, absolutely. Yes, the trick feels as though in not stepping into that other story. Yes, yes that's right, yeah. darling. That's the absolutely. hardest part. That is the hardest part, darling. Yeah. That's, that's, that's where, and again, that's where, let's say a person continually sees you in a wrong way and blames you for everything. You've got to make a decision whether you want to live mm. with that and whether it's just your good practice or you think I'm out of here, baby. You've got to yeah. make a decision. You know? yeah. The person who's projecting their junk all over you, that can get very tough. If you're yeah. a brave body suffer, you might be happy to have it. It's up to what you can handle. Mm. Do you understand? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Very good. Thank you. Go on. Maria's got a question. Um, yeah, we have a couple of others as well. Uh, Matt is asking, what directs the intention? Is it karma or habit? And if so, very what? Great, very good. Karma, habit, same meaning. So, okay. But the simplest meaning is this. It, anger in my mind, it, it, anger, intention, whatever you like. If anger is in my mind now, our view in this, in this crazy world for Prue, let's say, would be because Fred, she gets angry and the cause of her anger is Fred being mean to her. No. The cause of anger is a moment before it. The main cause of anger has to be something similar to anger, which is a moment before that in my mind, right where anger exists. So the, this moment of intention is from the previous moment of intention. And that intention is from the previous moment of intention. So that's a meaning of karma. One way that karma ripens is the habit to keep thinking or doing it. And that's this beginningless and endless process or not endless, we can change it. So yeah, the previous moment of intention is the main cause of this moment. The previous moment of that intention is the, is the, pre, is the cause of the previous moment of intention. And so it goes back. And that's a meaning of karma. The, written, the word intention is really the real meaning of the word karma, which is action, but mental action. That's what propels us. That's the motor. As Lama Zopa says, everything exists on the tip of the wish, virtuous or non-virtuous. Absolutely. Yeah, go on. Um, Afisha has asked, what is the role of the ego in relation to intention? Is it merely labelled as well? Okay, so ego is a very loose word we use. It's a Greek word for I, ego. I don't know how to say it. It's kind of a very guttural G, isn't it? This is the Greek word for I. And in our fancy psychology, all our fancy words are Greek, aren't they? So we, we just made up this word ego. Ego technically is another word for self, but we use it to mean the bad self. But self in general, or I in Buddhism, is a conventional fact. Rabina is a self. She's a person. So it's we use ego to refer to the mean I, the one who's full of the delusions and rubbish. So that I doesn't exist. It's a fantasy we made up. So we use it very loosely. So then ask the question again. Say what Afisha said. What did she say? Say it. Uh, she said, what is the role of the ego in relation to intention? Is it merely... Right labeled as well. No, ego doesn't exist. The way we say ego is we're referring to the neurotic self, which doesn't exist, Afisha. Intention does exist. Self, conventional self, conventional Afisha exists. That's a fact. We point to those that basis. 
you know, the body and mind of the person who comes from Baltimore. That's the basis of the label Ephesia. But there's no ego in there in the sense of the way we use the word. It's just this fantasy word we use for the mean Ephesia when she's ugly and unhappy. But there's no, there's no such thing. But Ephesia, bare bones, I or self, that's the name we give to the body and mind of the person who comes from Baltimore or has lived recently in Baltimore and now is who knows where. I don't know where you are. You're in Perth yet or you're still in uh, limbo? Where's Ephesia? I am. Um... <laughs> where are you, honey? Limbo, I am still in Dubai. Oh, my God, you're still in Dubai. Hope I you got am, a cheap... yeah. Honey, I haven't got a cheap hotel there. I do have a cheap hotel oh, here. Is it hot? you got AC, I hope. It's 49 degrees, isn't it? <laughs> I have the AC on and it is very oh hot. God. Oh, my God. <laughs> in Italy, she's trying to get to Perth to do some good things. Are they going to let you in soon? I hope so. I'm still working yeah. on it. Oh, my God. It's been weeks, hasn't it? It has been months, yes. Oh, Patricia, no. But you're doing okay. I am doing very well, thank you. You're working on, you're working on Zoom. I am working via Zoom, yes. Well done, girl. Okay, who knows my, I mean, I'm stuck in Santa Fe and you're stuck in Dubai, I don't know. Santa Fe's not too bad. <laughs> Dubai's <laughs> not too bad. Anyway, is my answer clear to you? Is my answer clear to you or not? Yes, it is, thank you. We're so we use it, there's no equivalent in Tibetan for that word or even in, in, in Sanskrit. We use it, when we say ego, we mean bad aphisha attached aphisha, angry aphisha, neurotic aphisha. But the word self or I is the bare bones name given to this basis here. And aphisha is the term we give for this particular I. That's just bare bones conventional reality. That's the best way to put it. Do you understand? I got it. Thank you, Gunnar okay. Rubina. Thank you, Aphisha. Thank you, sweetheart. What else, Jason, Amy? Uh, yep, Sam is asking, does that mean that intention will be driven purely by virtue once we remove the habitual delusions and- Yes! That's when you're a Buddha. Yes. <laughs> you have infinite wisdom, infinite virtue, and you'll just be on, on a roll, baby. You'll be perfect then. That's exactly right. Go on. What else? <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, from Christina. Uh, if we realize the emptiness of I and the I is a dependent arising, do we also realize our interconnection with every other sentient being? Is this synonymous with oneness, one consciousness? Okay, good, very good, very good. Okay, now there's more work to do. So when you, the very first, okay, in terms of the stages of development, if we're on the, if we're on the path, you know, the first level of realization we're going to get when we realize emptiness is liberation from samsara. So then we've cut the root, and from there on we don't need to be reborn, but we have got to perfect that realization. So if we stay there and we've achieved nirvana, we've achieved our own liberation from samsara, which is so blissful you can't imagine it. You know, you've cut the delusions, but you've got more to do if you're on the Mahayana path. So at that point, you don't need to be reborn. And if you, if your motivation over life after life after life is to get out of samsara, which is the wish for your own liberation, and then you're driven by this motivation, by the time you achieve liberation, then you won't need to come back. And you're, and you're going to be infinitely compassionate and loving and wise because you don't have any delusions left, but your motivation and your bliss override your love and compassion and you zap into nirvana and you won't come back again. But so this, this is very interesting in the different traditions, like in the Theravadan tradition, if you study in Burma or Thailand, they will tell you that, that, that when you've achieved nirvana, this is where there's many differences in Buddhist teachings, and it's very good to debate these things. The, the, from the Theravadan perspective that's taught in the, you know, if you study in Burma or Thailand, like I said, that when you've achieved your nirvana, 
you, you, your mind has ceased. Your delusions just haven't ceased, but your mind itself has ceased. And when you die, you've disappeared into a puff of smoke. Well, as His Holiness said, oh, we Mahayanas have a problem with that. And he laughed. So the Mahayana view is very different. It says the mind never ceases. It's only delusions that cease. This is a very interesting debate to have. It's very different in the different views. So if you're on the Mahayana path and your goal isn't just liberation, but your goal is Buddhahood, then you get to a point where you also don't need to be reborn. But what happens is because you, at the time you've cut the root and you don't need to be reborn at a certain stage of your own realizations, you, your love and compassion and your will override your bliss and you will come back again out of choice to benefit sentient beings and to bop along from life after life, perfecting your mind where you finally become a Buddha. So it's only then when you become a Buddha that you have infinite wisdom that sees the minds of all beings throughout the universe with no mistake you have infinite compassion with every for every sentient being as if they were you there is no longer separation and you have infinite power to do whatever needs to be done based upon infinite compassion and infinite wisdom to benefit infinite sentient beings by manifesting your mind in infinite bodies throughout infinite universes for the sake of infinite numbers of sentient beings then you finally there's no separation finally only then when you're Buddha. Okay, next question. Um, so there was a, a second part to Christina's question. I'm not sure if this has been answered for you, Christina, but um, can we arrive at the same realization of the emptiness of I if we feel this connection with others or is that just well, a nice experience? It's a very good point. It's a nice analogy that a bird needs two wings, wisdom and compassion. So the wisdom wing is all the nuts and bolts of working with karma, working on your own mind, getting renunciation, getting rid of attachment, getting rid of delusions. And if you finish that wisdom wing, you'd also realize emptiness and then you've achieved your nirvana. That's the wisdom wing. Then the compassion wing is where you now add bodhicitta to it, compassion, love, and then you get bodhicitta, which is this powerful aspiration to never give up going from life to life to life to benefit sentient beings. So what was the, asked the what was the question again? I forgot. What was what's he saying? Um, can we arrive at the same realization of the end? Okay. Okay, very good. No, you can have compassion coming out of your ears, baby. You can even have bodhicitta, but you can lose bodhicitta. Even you can lose bodhicitta. So outrageous, bodhicitta. You read the stories about bodhisattvas, you can't even believe there's this level of compassion. But because, until you realize emptiness, until you've got wisdom, that you can never lose. So you've got to do both wings of the bird. You can have infinite compassion. You can feed your body to animals, but you can lose bodhicitta until you've got wisdom. And, without, and wisdom on its own will only get you nirvana. Compassion on its own is not enough. You've got to have both wings because the power of the wisdom is what enhances. I mean, the wisdom you get, whether you're a Hinayana Ahant or the wisdom you get if you're a Mahayana Ahant is, is, is the same wisdom, but the compassion is what makes the difference. It's just like atomic bomb of outrageous compassion, outrageous power that even the lowest level Bodhisattva can manifest a hundred bodies, Arya Bodhisattva. An Arya Bodhisattva is one who realizes emptiness. At the first level of the 10 stages of Bodhicitta, once you're on the bodhisattva path, once you realize emptiness and Arya bodhisattva, even the lowest level can manifest your body in a hundred, your mind in a hundred different forms simultaneously. It's outrageous. But you can't do that without the wisdom, I'm pretty sure. But you can lose body cheetah, but you can never lose emptiness. And you've got to have both wings. It's a good question. You've got to have both wings of the bird. Go on. Time to go, Sam. Have a break. Go on. Uh, Bruna has asked, um, pardon ignorance, but what is the role of emptiness in Buddhism? 
The role of realizing emptiness is to stop suffering, darling, to quit the maniac ring being born in this life and that life and having unhappiness and jealousy and depression and people harming you and getting sick and dying and getting reborn and being miserable and depressed and anxious and worried and people harming you. The, the, what realizing emptiness means you've cut the, the delusion in the mind that, that causes us to have all this intense suffering. Once you've cut the root of suffering, You've got, once you realize this emptiness of inherent existence of the I and of everything else, which of course sounds abstract, you've cut the root of suffering. You are blissful. You are joyful. You are beyond, you've cut fear, you've got joy and you've got compassion and you'll keep on going if you're on the Bodhisattva path to benefit others for as long as time exists. So it's to help you stop suffering. That's the Buddha's method for helping to stop suffering. And then on the compassion, when you help others do the same thing. I hope that helps. Of course it's abstract in the beginning it sounds so weird you know what else any more questions before um, we have a break one more question going back to meditation uh chris is asking as a relative beginner to buddhist practice how often should i meditate and what type of meditation is best good darling i mean it's like there's thousands of ones but i think a good one to start with is get some a bit of karma binding a bit of concentration and start with your breath and then at least from this you have a discipline of starting something in the morning maybe you can think about the buddha then you can maybe read something to give you a bit of inspiration and then what you learn from that even just five minutes of watching your breath breath breath's not important but it's a good thing you anchor your mind to and then throughout the day what you bring into life in your in your is your ability to be a bit more aware of what's happening because you, you've stepped out of your head for five minutes so then you start to see your mind notice your anger notice your jealousy know it's not set in stone and maybe not try to follow it and then slowly slowly you get better and better at being your own therapist so it's a combination of doing some kind of practice in the morning reading something but then mainly it's familiarizing yourself with buddha's philosophy if you like buddhism familiarizing yourself with how he sees reality familiarizing yourself with how things are impermanent how things are empty with compassion and how to create to get them that's what a buddhist is doing so if you like the path you start little with little practice you read a few things and you go throughout the day you check your mind you check your body you check your speech you do a bit of practice to end the day and you keep moving and as the more you enjoy it the more you like it you go to classes here you go to courses there and you grow your path you know you find where you fit you find what works for you because you're the boss of this process i hope that helps so it's finished is it time for break okay you people we've got two hours left and I think we'll keep talking. We'll see how we go with the book. We'll do some more from Lama's book. And we'll especially go through the meditation that Lama leads, which is the Mahamudra style of looking for this eye that we so believe is there. So I'll read you a bit of that and you'll meditate on it. <laughs> 